Hello, and welcome to Dark Markets, the podcast about illicit finance and technology fraud. I'm your host, David Z. Morris. My guest today is Tiffany Fong, a citizen journalist and online commentator who has played a key role in chronicling the collapses of both the FTX cryptocurrency exchange and the Celsius crypto lending platform. Tiffany emerged from next to nowhere in late 2022 to become an omnipresent gadfly, commenting on that year's epidemic of cryptocurrency frauds and collapses. But rather than a professional journalist, Tiffany was a victim turned avenger. After losing six figures worth of crypto in the collapse of Celsius, she became a hilariously outspoken critic of Celsius's now indicted founder, Alex Mashinsky, and his wife, Chrissy Mashinsky. But Tiffany's work soon started looking a lot like actual journalism, including releasing leaked recordings of Celsius meetings, leaks that caught the attention of Sam Bankman-Fried well before he himself was revealed as a fraudster. When FTX collapsed, Tiffany spent dozens of hours talking to Bankman-Fried about his life and his version of the FTX story. That included Tiffany visiting SBF at his parents' home in Palo Alto several times while he was on house arrest in early 2023. I wanted to talk to Tiffany because while she's often referred to dismissively as an influencer and isn't shy about leaning into online content tropes, what she's accomplished is actually something much more serious than that. She got access where others couldn't and stuck with the story including covering Bankman-Fried's eventual criminal trial as closely as any major news outlet. Recordings of Tiffany's conversations with Sam helped establish his campaign finance fraud and have been featured in major documentaries about the FTX collapse. Her conversations with Sam have also given us a lot of insight into who he is as a person. And while she says she still considers Sam a friend, She also has a much more objective and clear-eyed view of the little boy from Palo Alto than the other journalist who had similar access, Michael Lewis, whose book-length account of the FTX saga sometimes seemed as delusional as Sam himself. So here's my conversation with Tiffany Fong, a self-described, quote, dumb bitch who is a better journalist than Michael Lewis. Well, I think you should like focus on what's working really well for you already, um, which is uh, well. Anyway, we'll talk strategy at some other time. I just secretly okay. hit record on you. I, I pulled it. I, I pulled That's a Marin. We're recording already. <laughs> I'm here. That's okay. With Tiffany Fong, um, the the infamous. You know, you've heard of us. <laughs> Tiffany, welcome. Tiffany has been a, a really significant figure in the entire. Sam Bankman-Fried FTX um, affair uh, recordings that she made in, of conversations she had with Sam recently showed up in an excellent Bloomberg documentary called Ruin, um, which I highly endorse. Um, and she has generally been a, a figure on the scene. She was at the trial. We hung out there. Um, and I have a lot of interesting questions about her approach to storytelling and finding the news and getting interviews and things that I supposedly am a professional at. Tiffany, welcome. How are you? I'm great. How are you? 
doing well. Um, living in the uh, days and haze of not having a job, which I think you're pretty well familiar with at this point. I know. I mean, I still I haven't really had a real job this entire time, but obviously the trial is over, and that was like the peak mm -hmm. of everything. I guess we've both been talking about for the past year. So yeah, it really does feel like the end of something, even for me, when like my entire life has been cryptocurrency for like years and years. I guess one place to start would just be, give me the short version of your story. You know, what you were doing before you were doing anything in crypto, how you kind of got interested and curious, and then kind of your, you became a bit of a citizen journalist, not not because of FTX, but um, just give us the short version of that and, you know, we'll, we'll break it down. Okay. Um I guess I got into crypto. Oof, wow, I already fucked up. I, I I got into crypto not really because I found it and That's took. How you know it's authentic? Just we'll call crypto. it crypto for the um, rest of the crypto. show. <laughs> creepy, creepy toe or whatever, <laughs> creepy dough. Um, yeah, I got into crypto really early in high school, not because I found it and was a little genius or anything, but one of my relatives was Bitcoin mining mm. and gave me my first Bitcoin back in 2011, wow. and I had no idea what it was. I had no interest in it. He told me it was worth, I don't remember the exact amount, but it was certainly under $100. And I was like, eh, thanks for this random weird like <laughs> gift. Um, but I basically held on to it mm. because I didn't know too much about crypto and watched the price skyrocket in 2017, watched it plummet. Um, but ultimately, in the last bull run, I ended up putting a, a bunch of my crypto that I had collected over the past years into Celsius Network, right. which, which will obviously- will be familiar to some people. Yes, yes. For those who aren't aware, Celsius is a now collapsed, I guess, crypto lender mm -hmm. or custodian. And um, I left 3.1 Bitcoins, 11.6 ETH in Celsius, along with some other coins. So it was worth well over 200K at the time I deposited it. Mm. Now, maybe 150K. I don't know, something That's around still. there. Uh, still a lot, still yeah. a lot. Um, so that was a, a substantial amount of my life savings. So I was just really just depressed and downtrodden yeah, after that yeah. collapse and after losing all that money. Yeah. So I went through just a period of depression and didn't know what to do with my life. Didn't know what to do was also having some difficulty in my personal life. So I just started posting on social media as an outlet. I was not a, a like sort of public person prior to that. I wasn't posting it or wasn't an influencer or anything mm -hmm. like that. Um, but yeah, just began posting first about my losses and then just posting updates on the Celsius bankruptcy because I was looking that up every single day right. and I knew other people were too. So that turned into employees inside of Celsius following me and beginning to leak me information. And um, the first piece I got was an internal all hands meeting, which I think was secretly recorded by one of the employees and sent to me. Um, so that started off, I guess, the whole citizen journalist mm -hmm. path, which I didn't necessarily set out to do. I didn't have any plans to do anything like that. Um, but I posted that first leak on Twitter in September 2022. And Sam Bakeman fried began following me that day for my first leak. So that set off this. That wild was his real fatal mistake, wasn't it? was how it all from collapsed. there it was all over for him from that moment people keep talking about the leaked balance sheet but it was really following me on twitter it really was yeah and i mean it's fascinating that and and you to be clear were not a victim of ftx at all right you were not a yeah. depositor there well okay let's take the next step sam started following you and then you started conversing with him then or was it much later 
I DM'd him that day on September 13th, 2022, because at the time I was really new to using social mm -hmm. media. He was the first sort of noteworthy follower I'd ever gotten. And I had maybe mm -hmm. like less than a thousand followers at the time. So I was just like, oh, I know this guy's sort of a big shot in this space. I honestly hadn't ever watched a single interview of him. I didn't know that much mm -hmm. about him other than the fact that I'd seen the guy's face in magazines and on covers of magazines. And I knew he was sort of a big deal. Um, so I messaged him, hey, thanks for the follow. Uh, and we just conversed really briefly that day. He was just like, oh, I thought it was interesting that you leaked that audio. Um, so that was our pretty much mm -hmm. only private interaction. Then he like commented on a couple of my posts over the next couple of weeks and months. Um, but then ultimately FTX ended up collapsing kind of like Celsius, yeah, but yeah. bigger. <laughs> you could have so, seen it coming. I mean, <laughs> he was, he was involved with the wrong people, meaning me. you. Yeah, exactly. Um, so two quick questions on the Celsius thing, which I'm sure we could have a conversation just about that. But, um, I guess first, what is the status of the Celsius recovery and, and what do you expect, if anything, to get back from, from that at this point? We still haven't seen a dime. It's been well over a year. Um, there have just been so many different plans being proposed ultimately with no <laughs> to no avail. Uh, and even the most recent plan that was just approved ended up getting sort of shut down by the SEC. So it, it feels like it's been over a year's worth of us paying lawyers exorbitant fees, bleeding customer funds, mm. and pretty much ending up nowhere. Like, so we still haven't seen a dime, and I'm expecting very little. Celsius ultimately ended up losing more than 50% of customers' assets. So I'm not expecting anything more than half, obviously. And that was pretty and much just, like, bad trading? Uh, Alex Mashinsky did a lot of stupid things. It was not only bad trading, but also he was buying things like... NFTs and shit with our coins when the business model was supposed to just be them lending to a supposedly institutional, reputable institution. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so it's interesting you mentioned NFTs because I had one other question about Celsius. Um, and maybe this is just, maybe this is not as big a deal as I thought, maybe just because I saw one particular thing. But what has your interaction been with Chrissy Mashinsky, which is his wife? Chrissy Mashinsky, right? Chrissy Mashinsky, Alex Mashinsky, the CEO of Celsius's wife. Fucking hates me. Oh, I don't know. We we need to decide if your podcast is going to be clean or no, or no, no, no. I don't think there's such a thing as a clean podcast anymore. So okay. Right. Well, she fucking hates me. Um, she uh, the day I first I posted that first leaked um audio, she began accusing me of having hacked into Celsius oh network God. systems. You love to see it. <laughs> she love to see it i know I, I think i responded chrissy if i could hack into celsius network systems i'd have my fucking coins back <laughs> like if i could hack your systems i would do other things than steal a leaked audio um but so that started off her just setting off a bunch of weird rumors about me she has since accused me of breaking into her physical home to acquire leaked information wow because <laughs> like, employees have been sending me leaks she's accused me of oh breaking so into as, her as home. the kids say she's crazy crazy she's crazy crazy i mean there are obviously a lot of villains in this crypto space but i think she's like genuinely mentally insane mm. and needs to be in an asylum <laughs> like she's crazy uh she's also accused me of helping sam bakeman fried bribe chinese government officials where i was like of all the things First that sam bakeman fried has done <laughs> and also i kind of low-key know where you're coming from with that and it's not a good place exactly i'm like he's done a lot of things and you're accusing me of the chinese government officials thing i'm like lady i'm asian i've never even been to china i don't speak china like i obviously have no part in this but i can see what angle you're taking here yeah. chrissy mishinsky yeah so 
quite a few things. Well, yes. you know, I, I I will say she has pretty intense trophy wife vibes, and and may not have may not be the right person to be speaking for any of that. Um, <laughs> so, but to get to kind of the substance, the the, the core of what I want to talk to talk about today. How was the trial for you? I mean, we we spent a month there, like, and you know, I, we're we're just getting to this a month later, but it was so intense. I really needed some recovery time. I don't know about you, but we spent you know almost every day there for a month, seeing some fairly intense things. What were your kind of like top takeaways, or like, what was the experience like yeah. for you? I mean, the trial was the most physically and mentally and emotionally grueling thing I think I've been through. I mean, not the most emotionally grueling thing. I've been through worse things, but obviously um, just every day, like you you were there probably every day mm. and just, yeah, the, the lack of sleep, waking up early in the morning and trying to get into the main courtroom and everything like that. Uh, but obviously, I mean, I was just throughout the trial, I was just trying to compare everything that Sam has told me over the past several mm. months to what comes out in court. How many lies did you actually tell me? I was just trying to weigh how shitty a person I had not was. thought about that, actually. The fact that, like, he might have been lying to you at certain points. I mean, what, on that question, like, what did you come away with? Well, I guess, I mean, actually, sorry, we should backtrack slightly because I'm not sure that we've been clear about, to, to listeners who might not be familiar with you, you spent, what would you say, how much time with Sam while he was in house arrest um, con convert talking to him? I've been asked this and I haven't tallied up the hours. I'd probably call it in the dozens of hours. I don't mm. know how many. It's. I feel like it's been over 10 to maybe a couple dozen hours. I'm not sure. Yeah. But you visited um, but several I, times and talked at significant length. Um, yeah. So, and yeah. we'll... I guess we'll, maybe we'll bridge back to the part of the story where you actually wind up going to his house. But on the trial, yeah. So, so yeah, what was your conclusion about, you know, had he been truthful to you? Okay, so I think the thing about Sam is that he's been careful. I mean, particularly after he had been indicted. He's told me very explicitly, like, I'm being really, really careful not to tell lies, mm. especially because if I tell lies right now, then um, I like I'm probably going to get get into more trouble. So I think if anything, I saw him sort of waffle and make excuses and mm. um, sort of give not really explicit um, answers to questions. So I mean, he said a lot of things that I think were misleading um uh, but would always like when i look back at our conversations he'd always say yeah. the misleading things with like i think this is what happened or i believe that x and uh, x mm. and y happened so um yeah he, he but he there were some things that he had said that i think that didn't line up with yeah. uh caroline and Gary's testimonies mm. but there yeah. were though some real um moments of frankness in your conversation specifically the thing that wound up or one of the things that wound up in the Bloomberg documentary was him talking about the campaign campaign donations and um I think I don't know if I had seen it quite as explicitly elsewhere but he just said yes some of the donations were dark quote unquote in his words um so I mean really yeah. just like admitting to campaign finance fraud to you as far as I could tell um so he, I think, thought that that was legal. I mean, so that actually, the Sam admitted to me that he donated a lot of money dark to Republicans. He actually claimed to have donated about the same amount to Republicans and Democrats. And that was actually in our very first phone call. Mm -hmm. So um, I actually didn't realize at the time what a big news story that was, but it ended up getting 
first of all, covered a lot in the media. Mm -hmm. And secondly, was cited in the FEC complaint against him. Um, when he told that to me, um, yes, the actual like transcript of the recording was cited in the FEC complaint. So it actually got him a lot of shit. Um, so that was our very first recording actually. Um, and, I, I didn't know it was such a big deal at the time because I, like I said, I didn't follow Sam that closely. So when he was saying that to me, I didn't know that that was not public prior. Yeah. So I didn't know it was like a big scoop that I got. And, you know, I um, guess maybe for, for listeners, I, I haven't dug into it. But one thing interesting about that is that there is a version of quote unquote dark money that would be like if you donate to a pack or something where you're making an individual donation and then the spending is curtailed or is like controlled in certain ways and it's not as public as a donation to a campaign. But what he did was actually like the fraud version of that and not the not the okay version of dark money. But I think it's interesting to hear you say he like didn't think it was illegal because as we found out later, his mom was the one telling him to do it. Yeah. So first of all, I don't know enough about um, campaign finance law to right. know what fair, is legally illegal. <laughs> Sam seemed to think that what he was saying to me was legal because he was like, well, because of Citizens United, pretty much anything like that is legal. So he seemed to think it was legal when he was telling it to mm-hmm. me. And when I when I followed up with him asking if he was upset at me for um, posting that part of the conversation, because he didn't say off the record to that. But mm. um yeah, he wasn't upset. He wasn't upset with me, but he said that he, um, the reason why he was making that public to me was that he thought that it was important that he make clear that he wasn't just partial to Democrats. He thought he was just mm. trying to show that he was yeah. bipartisan. He didn't realize he was admitting to anything. I uh, thought it was legal, and yes, it is very interesting because as, as we've seen in trial, it does seem like. Barbara Freed, his mom, was sort of pulling a lot of the string strings in terms of where the donations were going and who they were coming from. So that was very interesting mm-hmm. to see. Yeah. And, and as part of the trial, um, you were in the courtroom proper a lot of the time. So um, and, and we've talked a bit that you interacted very bl- briefly with his parents when you were visiting him on house arrest. Um, was there anything interesting about being in the room with them during the trial? Um, yeah, I mean, his parents never seemed particularly interested in talking to me when I would visit the house, and I got the sense they didn't particularly like me. I didn't take it personally throughout most of it, because I tried to introduce myself to them once or twice when they'd pop their head into the room that Sam and I were talking Mm -hmm. in, and they would just shut the door on me. But I was like, oh, well, they're lawyers, so they probably don't really like the fact that Sam is talking to people. But later I found out that, like, the parents were having Michael Lewis <laughs> over for dinners with them. And, you know, obviously right. And Michael Lewis did films. interview Sam extensively when he was on house arrest. Yes. And they obviously knew this was going to come out publicly. So it wasn't the fact that Sam was making statements to someone that were going to come out publicly. But um, I, I did get the sense that they didn't love me. But yeah. yeah, it was interesting to be in the courtroom with them. Obviously, they didn't come and approach me or anything like that. But um, I did have like a brief interaction with his mother that I've talked about. And I don't want to make too much of her, her reaction to me mm. since she's obviously going through a hard time. Very, but yeah. um, she did make clear that she does not like me. So. Yeah. And I think it's fascinating to contrast you with Michael Lewis being around and, you know, them giving him access and clearly being friendly with him in the courtroom, which we saw many times um, yes. or a, a few times that he was there. And yeah. he's so clearly I don't know if you've seen the, the latest thing from him where yesterday there was a, a, an interview published where he compared the trial to a lynching 
which is something that, you know, um, I'll apologize for my woke mind virus, but I find deeply, deeply offensive. Um, and he's so clearly on their side. And so it's very interesting to hear that you were both at the house during the, the you know, house arrest period. He was being invited to dinner with the whole family. You were being given the cold shoulder. Well, at the same time, and here's where I'm working around to my point, is that, you know, you get... I, I think it's fair to say that people tend to dismiss you as, you know, maybe insubstantial or something. But between you and Michael Lewis, you're clearly the more objective journalist. Thank you. I mean, it has been tough because I've been making a concerted effort to cover everything fairly. And when something negative about Sam comes out in trial, I've been covering mm -hmm. it and not being particularly favorable to Sam. But ultimately, at the end of the day, and as I've been a little bit more open with speaking about since the trial is over, I do actually consider Sam a friend. I We spent a lot of time talking mm. and I actually like, enjoyed hanging out with him on a personal level. But that doesn't mean that I ever thought that he was innocent legally right. of the crimes. I didn't just believe everything he said hook line and sinker so um i ha actually haven't read going infinite mm. so i can't i don't want to write shit on right. michael lewis but i think that the general sentiment has been that he has been a little bit too favorable and yeah. i did read part of the um puck story and yeah the lynching comparison is like i understand where he was going with it the the fact that it did become sort of a public spectacle um is notable of I which guess, you but to, to be fair we're also a bit of a part but go on yeah, yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. So I, I can see where he's coming from. The lynching comparison, I think, is a little bit strong. Mm, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah, to yeah. say the least. Um, but yeah. on that point, you know, I mean, you, you say you, you know, never were particularly, never particularly felt that Sam was innocent. Um, did you have mixed feelings about him you know, when you were sitting there, were you, was there a part of you that like wanted him to be found innocent or were you, did you think there was any chance that he would be found innocent? And were you, I don't know, anxious about that or anything? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess the thing is that, and you and I'm, I don't know your actual stance on all of this stuff, but I ultimately don't think Sam is a malicious person who set out to harm people mm. and ruin people's lives. I do think that he's sort of in, to, to an almost delusional extent, really does believe in effective altruism and really thought that what he was doing was the right thing to do and thought that he had this grand plan of wanting to help people. Mm -hmm. I do think he's delusional and quite reckless and obviously has way too high a risk tolerance. Um, yeah. but And a very so high self-regard, I think, is the one thing I would add to that list. He does. He does. He's like extremely overly confident. Yeah, he thinks that he's like the smartest guy in the room, I, I would say. Mm. Um, but I so I but legally, I think that it seemed to me that he had legally committed fraud. I don't think that he's like an evil, malicious person, which is probably not going to be a popular sentiment, yeah. but I don't think he set out to hurt people. So I, I did feel conflicted about whatever outcome I wanted. I mean, I didn't I, I, I still would say that I don't want to see him go to jail for the rest of his or prison for the rest of his life. Um, mm -hmm. I know that a lot of people disagree, but um, yeah, I was conflicted about what I thought should happen, but I thought that like legally it's like, I think it's pretty clear that you right. were deceptive and that you were, you misled yeah. investors, you misled customers. So I was like, legally, I think that you are guilty. Um, I was trying to decide whether or not I actually thought he was a malicious evil person. And I, I, I think it's like a mixture of things. Like, I don't think that he's, I don't know. I yeah. guess I just said I don't think he I mean I evil. I think that my position has come down to like 
I'm not sure I believe there's a difference anymore between being a malicious, evil person who sets out to, out to steal billions of dollars and a person who just 100% believes that none of the rules apply to them. I mean, I think Sam mm-hmm. just believes that none of the rules apply to him ever. And I think that that's, yeah. even if you you think that you're doing that in the context of some greater good, I think that that is yeah. evil, actually. <laughs> um, so, uh, so I you can, know, that's I can my understand position. that. I, I can understand that. And obviously the outcome being a lot of people getting hurt right. is obviously... Yeah, we can't say that you you've done obviously done net harm yeah. on the world, which is something that Sam has acknowledged to me in conversation. He's he's acknowledged that he has harmed the world and yeah. has said he never intended to, but you know, obviously bad things happened and people were hurt. Yeah. So So were you you were in the courtroom at the when the verdict was read out, right? I sadly was not. Oh, I that, I, I forgot actually we talked about this. You. Yes. Well, because, yeah, the day that the the jury began deliberating, I was talking to the court marshals and I was like, oh, I'm so tired. Like, I, should I stay and sit here for the rest of the day and wait to see if the verdict comes out? And the court marshals were like, oh, it's they're like a case like this. Like, there's no way they reach a verdict today. They were like, you come back on Monday. I'm sure it'll be like sometime right. next week. So I went home and I was just thinking I was waiting for Monday. And then uh, four hours after the jury began deliberating, they obviously came back with the guilty verdict yeah. on all seven charges. And I was not in the courtroom. I was so sad. I ran to the courthouse as soon as I saw the news, but obviously it was too late. Yeah, it was it was a wild thing. I mean, we obviously talked about it, but um, the most interesting part and maybe you can provide some insight here. The most interesting part to me was that no surprise when the when the guilty verdict was being read out, both Joe Bankman and Barbara Freed had a had an emotional moment. Um, they did not scream or yell or anything crazy, and it seems like they basically were expecting the verdict on some level. They certainly didn't seem shocked by it, even though they were clearly devastated. But what was interesting to me was that, like, after the verdict was read out, the, everybody was let out, um, except that all of the journalists just stood there because Bankman and Freed, the parents, kind of went up to stand behind Sam, who was at the defense table. Um, And, you know, they didn't cuff him on sight. He had his two marshals there who were going to escort him into the antechamber and they were going to cuff him there and he would go to jail from there. Um, But the, the two parents were standing there and Sam was like talking to his lawyers. He did not really acknowledge his parents in that moment. I mean, at a certain point, he like glanced at them and I think like nodded. But there was no real like moment, and I, I can understand being in intense shock. But he didn't even like mm-hmm. try to like give his mom a hug or something like that, which yeah. might have been his last opportunity for a couple of decades to do that. I don't know how the rules work yeah. in medium security prison, um, but I was struck by that. He seemed uninterested yeah. in his parents at that moment, and so I'm curious from your interactions. If you had any insight into his relationship with his parents, especially in light of the fact that, you know, his mom was involved in the campaign finance stuff, his dad seems to have given specific advice that led to all of this, and kind of I'm on on one level wondering if Sam himself might feel like his parents threw him under the bus. Mm. I mean, actually... um... Well, first of all, I wasn't ultra surprised to hear that Sam was sort of stone-faced at the verdict uh, because 
I, I even I, I did like a little live stream as I was running into the courthouse and I was like honestly I can't imagine Sam being reacting emotionally to mm-hmm. this or really anything mm-hmm. um the more I've gotten to know Sam I know that he has like quite a limited emotional range yes. and he doesn't feel extreme lows or um extreme sadness I've seen him have little sort of breakdowns and whatnot but um he generally tends to not feel um, extreme lows so I I kind of wasn't expecting him to have too big a reaction but um in terms of his parents, Sam has actually never blamed his parents for anything or mm-hmm. um, he did. Yeah, anytime I've asked about his parents or his brother's involvement, he has sort of closed up and not wanted to blame them at all, right. really. So he he doesn't seem to have a lot of resentment towards them. Mm-hmm. Um, if anything, he's somewhat protective of them, which I think is probably... I don't know. It may, it, it's. I think he could probably blame them for a lot more right. if he wanted to get out of this because it seems that well, they were more involved than he just let on. Yeah. So it's kind of strange, and I don't know if that's necessarily noble, but it, 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 he does seem protective it's of his parents. It's at least a basic level of human concern for your family, which is totally. not something you get from Sam in every instance. Um, this is true, because I was surprised because he, he could blame them. I, I guess the one time I've seen some blame towards his parents was when I confronted him about the $10 million that went to his mm-hmm. dad. And he, he, Sam did say, he did seem sort of that he gave that sort of begrudgingly. And at the time, that was before the actual filing came out mm-hmm. that, um, that relayed the conversation that Joe had with Sam, where Joe asked Sam for more uh, for a high higher pay and then hmm. got his mother involved in the conversation I, I don't know if you want to like reference that exact moment but um well no he said i'm gonna tell up. your mom to give give us 10 million dollars or or get to give me i'm gonna yes. call mom and get him get you to juice my salary yeah that yes. moment and then yeah a couple weeks later sam sent his parents 10 million dollars so what i before that i didn't know that piece of the story but i asked sam why he gave his parents 10 million dollars and sam did seem like he gave that money somewhat begrudgingly hmm. he was like well, I mean, he was like, yeah, I didn't feel really good about that, honestly. Mm. And I was like, well, so what happened? And he was like, well, my dad just really wanted it. And wow. I was like, so that was the one time I saw him sort of like, he did seem, he he didn't seem happy that he gave his parents that money. And he did seem a little like that it was sort of forced. And obviously at the time, I didn't know whether or not he was being honest. But then that mm-hmm. court filing came out that showed that his dad was actually sort of pestering Sam for that oh, money. Wow. So, it, yeah. So I thought that was actually really noteworthy. That's really insane. Let's backtrack to how you started talking to Sam um, after. I mean, you you didn't really interact with him between that first contact and then the um, the collapse, right? Yeah, we didn't we didn't um, have any messages during that time. But Sam commented on a couple of my posts. One of my posts, I was just making fun of Alex Mashinsky, the mm. CEO of, FT, <laughs> of Celsius, and Sam commented, "LOL." So he had seen the way that I was treating another, I guess, alleged fraudster at the time. And um, see, yeah, and, he has no excuses. Know, like this is the thing we'll talk about the recording status. But that's yeah. why I thought it was strange that he was so willing to talk to me. Um, so I was I've. Prior to FTX, I was really, really hard on Alex Mashinsky and Celsius, and he commented and to LOL. Be clear, some of my hard posts. in like a rhetorical sense. You, you're, you're, you're a roaster. You're, you're a brutal yes. uh, character assassin. You, you say nasty things, and I love it, which is why we're I talking did. right now. I did, I did say a lot of fuck yous to Alex Mashinsky. If somebody um, lost two hundred thousand so dollars worth of my money, I would have fuck you on like a macro on my keyboard. 
I, it actually started more when Chrissy Mishinsky began accusing me of things. I was like, oh, these people are actually fucking evil and mm -hmm. psychotic. Yeah. So I'm going after them harder now. Um, so there was that. And then um, I know that someone asked Sam why he was following me, because at the time when he initially started following me, it, I had practically no following. And Sam was obviously the golden boy of crypto mm -hmm. and he commented that he was following me for my celsius leaks so mm -hmm. he was intentionally following me for my leaks but so yeah we hadn't messaged between september and november but on november 11th once ftx filed for chapter 11 bankruptcy i was just thinking okay this is like celsius but on a bigger scale and i've messaged with this guy once before so our dms are open i'm just gonna shoot my shot send him a message Highly doubt he's going to respond to me. Like, he's there's no fucking way he responds. Little did you know. And obviously, yeah. Like, someone in Sam's shoes whose company just collapsed and may be indicted A normal soon, human being, not be for talking example. To anyone. <laughs> yeah, should not be talking to anybody. So, I first of all didn't think he'd respond to anyone, but I was like, in addition, like, I'm sure Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg and everyone, all these big publications are going to try to talk mm -hmm. to him, so I doubt he's going to respond to me. Um, so I sent him a message on November 11th just saying, hey, obviously there's a lot going on in the news about FTX right now. Would you be willing to talk <laughs> to me and tell me it. your side of the story? Yeah, <laughs> something along those lines. And um, moved on with my life. I didn't expect a response. And um, five days later, on November 16th, while I was out on a date and was having drinks with someone, kind of tipsy, uh, I got a message, from, I got a DM from Sam Bakeman Fried at like 12.30 a.m. saying, hey, happy to chat, free for the next hour or so for what it's worth, and sent me his phone number. So I just ran home kind of tipsy from a date and um, quickly looked up headlines about what was happening in FTX because I had no questions. I gotta say, your date something. must have just felt awful. <laughs> Well, I got to so, go home so that I can get on the phone with this fraudster. I'm really sorry. I know things are going great. No, the the funny thing about the date, the guy is someone that I met through this crypto stuff. Oh. And I had just moved to New York and we met through like Twitter crypto stuff. And he had lost a lot of money to, to FTX. Oh. So he told me it was in the millions. I obviously never saw his account right. to verify that, but he told me he lost millions of dollars to FTX. So he knew who Sam was. And I showed him the DM as soon as I got out. And I was like, oh my God, Sam Bakeman Fried said he's, he can talk to me right now. So he was like, you need to go home and ask him where the wow. fuck my money is. Nice. It, it so, all fits together. All fits together. So that was the beginning of a series of conversations. So we actually had two phone calls before Sam was arrested. Um, so we had two phone calls. The second phone call I actually didn't post a lot of because it, it, it turned into a pretty long phone call where we were just kind of talking about life and mm. depression and mm. um, kind of personal stuff. So I think that we built some rapport on the phone um, and yeah. Uh, yeah, just talked for a few hours. Um, but... Um, ultimately because my first, when I released both those interviews around the same time, um, I, I didn't think you'd want to talk to me again after the way that the first interview was received mm. since he made that dark submission to me. So I was mm -hmm. like, I think this guy probably doesn't want to talk to me again. Um, but no, but yeah, once you, know, you weren't done yet. No. I know. I, I like at every step of the way, I've thought like, this is going to be the last time I speak to Sam. Like I've thought that every step of the way, but it it ended up being a whole series. So yeah, Sam was ultimately um, went off on his little media tour a couple weeks after our first phone calls. Um, 
because I had my first phone calls on the 16th and the 20th and he started that media he did the New York Times deal book summit on the 29th mm. so he set off on the media tour and then was arrested and imprisoned in the Bahamas for eight days extradited to the United States and released on a 250 million dollar personal recognizance bond and ended up at his parents home mm -hmm. in Palo Alto California and the day that he touched down at his parents' home, I he texted me at 3 a.m. And I woke up to a text from Sam saying, hey, finally back online. So I was just, I, I was surprised to hear from him. What a casual um, way to say I'm just... out of jail. <laughs> so true. Finally back online. That's well, so it's funny. also interesting because that probably is the way he thought about it. And there has been a lot of commentary of people wondering, like, how he's going to survive if he doesn't have, like, a laptop with League of Legends in installed in, in prison. I wonder that, too, because that is he, he did tell me multiple times that was the main thing he was worried about. Not League of Legends, but lack of access right. to Internet was the main thing he was worried about in prison. So um, let's take this yeah. brief detour before we go to the part of, of you getting to visit him at home because you mentioned the the times dealbook summit his parole obviously he was on parole until he leaked carolyn ellison's diaries and i wanted to ask you frankly as a woman about that specifically and what your feelings about that were at the time because i think it was pretty obvious even before the judge discussed it that he was trying to smear carolyn and so I'm curious whether you shared that assessment and kind of how you felt about that, again, from somebody who you regard as a friend. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it's something he had told me he wanted to do prior to oh, him no. leaking it. We had talked about it. <clears throat> um, I actually viewed those diary entries uh, several months before he ended up giving them to the New York Times. Mm -hmm. um, so he had told me that he thought that, like, he didn't, he never said he wants, he never explicitly said he wants to smear Caroline or he wants to tamper with witnesses or anything like that. But he was like, yeah, I mean, Carol he would tell me sort of the back end of their relationship. Mm -hmm. And he told me, obviously, like, Caroline wasn't happy with him for a lot of the relationship. And she obviously had some negative feelings towards him after their breakups. And he did seem to want to get that point across. And he did show me some of her personal writings. And he was like, yeah, she see, she says things like this. Um, so I knew that he wanted to get that out in some form. Um, but so the implication the of that, that would be that he was, he was trying to discredit her. If, if the point is to say she has bad feelings about me and now she's going to testify against me in court about business stuff that's not related to the personal thing. That seems to be the gist, yeah. right? I believe so. I mean, he didn't explicitly say that right. with his own words, but like it does seem to be the gist. And I don't want to like accuse him of intentionally tampering with witnesses. Well, but the judge already ruled that, so you don't have to accuse him of anything for sure. That's true. That's true. That's true. Actually, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think I. I think I even told him like you should probably watch out about like doing something like that though, because it could be seen as witness tampering. <laughs> like I, I oh, explicitly okay. told well, good him for that. You. Yeah. Like. In our conversations, I was like, I don't know if that's a good idea, Sam. I don't know if that's a good idea. I mean, that so you you certainly were the responsible person because he obviously doesn't, as he told you, he doesn't trust lawyers who are the actual experts on that question. So maybe he would have taken the advice from some random person he met on the internet. I gave him a lot of advice. I gave him. A, I think I tried to actually like temper a lot of his weird ideas during the house arrest that he'd kind of he'd kind of like shoot me ideas mm -hmm. and see what I thought of doing certain things or doing certain press or whatever and I was just like I don't know if you should do that Sam I think you should probably not do another media tour uh, I think you should probably not do XYZ 
Oh. On that question, and I'm just curious for your read of his mindset, which is, you know, why did he feel like it was a good idea? And, you know, another one of the clips from your conversations that wound up in the Bloomberg documentary um, and, and just kind of one of the general mysteries of, of his behavior was why he was talking to everybody. And, you know, um, I don't know how tuned into this you were, but like it totally wound up screwing him because I think that the consensus was that one of the reasons that when I talked to legal experts, right, one of the reasons that the defense was so weak in his trial was because he had already given a version of events to the media that could then, you know, they couldn't argue anything that contradicted the stuff that he said back in November and December. Yeah. Um, so, yes. I mean, he really, and once we get to sentencing, my God, his big mouth is going to be really on display because his performance in the cross-examination was so terrible that it might actually increase his sentence. But why do you think he feels this compulsion? Where does it come from, this idea that he has that, like, talking is going to save everything, that the more he talks, the better it's going to go, contrary to all evidence, really? No, I even told him during house arrest, I was like, Sam, the more you talk, the more you post, even like he was doing Substack posts and he showed me his Substack posts the day before he posted it. And I, I was just like, Sam, I like there are a couple concerns here. Like obviously you relaying your entire narrative of events publicly gives the prosecution more time to develop their case against you if they know the points you're going to be making. And obviously then you can't, you can't you can't depart mm -hmm. from whatever narrative you're putting out publicly. Like I was giving him this advice along the way wow. in house arrest and he didn't listen. To me. Um, but he, he basically said, he was like, well, first of all, I think he thinks that lawyers don't know, don't know what they're talking about. He does tend to think he's smarter than everyone around him. Thinks Which he's is at moments like this where I feel no sympathy for him whatsoever, by the way. This is true. And there, there are moments where I am just kind of like, Sam. Um, so I, I agree with that. Um, but he basically was like, well, most lawyers tell their clients not to talk because their clients are trying to lie. And he would, he would say, well, I'm not trying to lie. I'm just trying to tell the truth. So I'm not worried about the public statements I'm making because I'm telling the truth. And, and this is where the narrator breaks in and goes, he was in fact lying to the public. Oh, and I have to ask you, because that's very interesting to hear about the Substack particularly. I don't know if this came across your radar, but I actually wrote a couple of columns in, you know, sort of summarizing and analyzing his Substack posts. And one of the things that I noticed when I was reading those was like, they were sloppy. They had not been like copy edited. I mean, you saw them, but I presume did not go through and do a line by line edit. So there were like typos and misspellings. And my read of that was like, oh, this is a guy who is completely isolated and you can see it right on the page because he doesn't have anybody. Or I guess maybe he's not like listening to the people he does have, but he has nobody who he trusts who can give him feedback even on like, you know, got, like whatever. Obviously he shouldn't have done it in the first place, but the actual content yeah. too, like he had nobody who um, was going to like help him get that right, even if they did agree that he should say something. Oh my god, I almost feel like that was my responsibility because I hung out with him the or I I I mean to I, be like, clear, no, it was not, but it's not my responsibility. But like he did have me look it over and I just really didn't read it, honestly. Oh my god. <laughs> he showed it to me and it's I, all your well, fault. All, We're back to it's, it's all your fault. It's my His fault. fatal mistake. It's to, this is all my fault, guys. It's my fault. 
Sorry, Sam. Um, well, first of all, I just Not have sorry. really bad eyesight. I have really bad oh. eyesight. So he would show me things on his computer and he was like, yeah, what do you think of this? And he'd be like kind of scrolling through and I was like looking as if I was reading it, but I really couldn't see anything. And I was just like, uh-huh. So uh-huh. for that like, yeah. reason alone and perhaps other reasons that you can project onto it, I just have to say that like, yeah, it's a bad sign when you, Tiffany Fong, are his like sanity check. I think that's fair to say, right? I assume, okay, you know what? I also think that he told me that he sent a copy to his lawyers and I think his parents looked it over as well. Um, So he did actually try to sanity check it, but um, I think he said that his lawyers, I was like, did your lawyers green light this? And he was like, yeah, kind of. And I was like, later, I think in in another visit, I was like, so did your lawyers like actually give you the go ahead? And he was like, well, they just didn't say anything. So I was like, okay, so they didn't like, Tell, they didn't give you the go-ahead, but I guess his lawyers apparently didn't say anything to the Substack. I, I wonder if I they were actually just protecting themselves at that point, if they already knew their client was a lunatic and that the less they were involved, the better. Honestly, at this point, it's just kind of like with the guilty verdict, they have a lot of they have a lot of grounds to be like, well, he kind of did this to himself. Like, yeah. he, he, it's not really our fault. So, um, yeah, I did... I, get, I did notice afterwards, like, a lot of typos and errors. I actually pointed one out on... Um, on Twitter, I pointed out, it was a silly one. I was kind of just joking, but he had like three spaces between sentences. Usually he does two, which I, I think is already quite a bit, but um, I pointed it out and he Sam responded to my um, tweet about it. And then Molly White pointed out that immediately after that, Sam went in and deleted that, that third space. Aww. So I did enact change in his Substack. <laughs> so it's yay. It's all so sad. <laughs> Oh, Sam. Um, oh, God. So the last thing I wanted to talk to you about is, um, you know, we we talk, you know, I, I, I'm a, I didn't go to journalism school, but I'm a quote unquote working journalist. Um, I'm not working in the sense that I don't have a job right now, but, um, you know, in general, I have worked as a journalist and I feel like I kind of know the standards of the profession. Um, and I'm curious, like, what kind of feedback, if any, you've gotten about your own you know, I mean, you're doing these interviews, they're they're part of the public record, they're having an impact. You're essentially in a journalistic role, while also, I mean, you have some interesting tactical options, I would say, that maybe a working journalist who's associated with like the Wall Street Journal doesn't have. And so I think that you really are like, in, in many ways, like the paradigm of what people have called a citizen journalist. Um, and I guess I'm just curious for your perspective on like how that has been. And I don't know, maybe whether you think other people should do it more often. I honestly, like, I don't label myself anything. I'm flattered to be called a citizen journalist. I think that most media publications call me an influencer. So I'm happy. Like, I don't, I don't police what other people say about me. So anything is fine. Um, But so I really didn't know the proprieties of what you're supposed to do as a journalist. Like, I didn't know. When I first hopped on the phone call with Sam, he was going on and off the record. He'd Mm -hmm. occasionally say... On background, I didn't know what the rules were around any of these things. I'll I'll tell Um, you a secret. He probably didn't either because that's not how that works. (laughs) Oh, well, I I did always remove anything he said that was off the record. So you actually were more more respectful of his desires than a real journalist would have been or a trained journalist. Yeah, because the way it works actually is you can't, as the person being interviewed, you can't just say this is off the record. You have to ask the person who's interviewing you, can I tell you something and you will treat it as off the record? 
Like you have to, um, you can't just be like, okay, now I'm going to tell you something that you can't tell anybody and then just go. It has to be an agreement yeah. between the two parties. See? So you, yeah, you went, mean, see, you went above and beyond really in terms of helping him. I did. I mean, I tried to just Google it and obviously I understood that it's not like a legal matter. So I, it'd be right. completely legal for me to post off the record things and I don't have a boss, so mm -hmm. I could do it anyway, but I've tried to maintain some, some ethical framework yeah. and some respect for anyone that I'm talking to. So I have very carefully always gone in and removed anything Sam said was off the record. Um, but yeah, I didn't know, like, I didn't know what embargoing meant and things like that. Um, which Sam has never actually asked me to embargo things, but like I've heard the word. <laughs> yeah, I mean, these are all like little, none of it's very important, right. so, really. Yeah, so I don't actually know the whole, uh, the propriety of all of it. Um, I didn't know that you hadn't gone to journalism school. You've done a great job. Okay. Um, but yeah, I, don't, I honestly still don't fully know what I'm doing. I've tried to maintain some some uh, ethical framework just to be a good person and not feel like a shitty yeah. person. But um, yeah, it's it's been interesting. I mean, ultimately... I don't think you need to work for a publication to get your to get a story out at this point, this day and age. Um, so, I mean, obviously there are big people like Copyzilla who obviously has a massive following, and I'm kind of like he probably can get as big a reach as some some publications oh, yeah. out there can. Yeah. So uh, I I think I would encourage people to if someone was interested in journalism, I think that. I'm personally not someone who ever likes going the traditional route, and I'm personally not someone who likes listening to anyone or being told what to do. So for me, I I have no aspiration to ever work for a publication, even though it probably is nice, though, to get an actual salary and be paid to cover a story. I've been moving myself around using my own savings mm -hmm. and trying to scrap by to move to San Francisco to interview Sam and go to New York City for the trial. Mm -hmm. I've just been using all of my savings. So it's certainly not great financially but um but if you're I've, doing that like out of your own money you're you're clearly doing it for like a reason or probably many reasons but one has to be that you're like enjoying it on some level right like you you must yes, be totally you know, loving it I have really enjoyed this. I mean, I still don't know what I consider myself or label myself, although legally I think it's smart for me now to be called a journalist since I've had some run-ins. <laughs> but um independent journalist is also that. a thing by the way. This is true. This is true. Um, but, ooh, I forgot what your question was. Oh, my God, my memory. Oh, just that you're having fun. Oh, yes. I mean, I, I think I've just really actually genuinely cared about these stories. I mm. obviously cared about the Celsius collapse because I lost money. And then with Sam, I ultimately, I do think that we became friends, although that has never changed my opinion in terms of if he's legally guilty or innocent. Right. I think I've been quite unbiased about that. Um, but... Uh, I did care to see what happened to him and and wanted to see what points mm -hmm. at which he might have lied to me and wanted to see yeah. all the witness testimonies of the other people. So I have really cared about all of it. And it was just, to me, there was no question as, as to whether or not I was going to go to the trial. Mm. I was like, I have to be there. Yeah. I'll do anything. Yeah. And, and I mean, I think that that's like, you've tapped into several things there in terms of, you know, caring about stuff. I mean, big part of journalism is you just have to care a lot about things that maybe even don't necessarily, I mean, in your case, it's, at least part of it impacted you directly, but the other part didn't. And then, I mean, you get invested in stuff because you're just trying to get answers. Um, yes. And I just think it's great to to have somebody like you. I think you're like a very, I mean, there are not enough people like you who are going out there and just trying to get the story and like share information and just doing it in a way that, you know, isn't, um, I mean, crassly manipulative and or lazy. Like you are really out there doing the work. Um, and, and so I guess I, I, I wanted to just kind of get your, 
your experience, because I think people think of journalists, especially over the last 10 years or so, as either these like weird elites who exist on a different plane or these like crass operators who are totally self-interested, which by the way, you do not go into journalism to make money. So that doesn't totally hang together. But anyway, so, so it's interesting. I, I think it's really cool to see somebody who can just talk about why it's strictly for like personal reasons. They were interested in like getting this story, finding something out, figuring out what made another person tick, which is a big part of journalism. Uh, and then just like went through and did it. And I think that a lot of people could, um, benefit from at least knowing about your, your experience and your model. Um, and you should become it's like an evangelist yeah. for citizen journalism, in my opinion. Maybe I should. Honestly, it has been really interesting to see. Like, I I didn't know that someone like me, I guess, not to put myself on any sort of pedestal, would be able to get such high profile interviews or be such a big part of the biggest financial. Well, actually, that's giving myself too much credit. I'm not actually a big part of the actual financial fraud scandal. <laughs> but to be able to get those interviews and um, yeah. get some, I guess, scoops I mean, that I didn't actually know were scoops. I think that this is something that people have no idea about, which is that there can there are people who are key players in huge stories and nobody ever goes to the effort of asking them even a single question. And I think there's actually some of that going on right now with the trial. And I, I put myself in this category as well. But like, we could be interviewing those jurors now. Like, they are fair game. And I haven't seen anything to the effect that people are actually following up on that. Um, which, you yeah. know, maybe we'll get around to it eventually. But um, I was actually wondering, like, do you have a list of their names? <laughs> I can probably get one. We can talk. I, don't, I just I was like looking you for their names online. You can go somebody else for like, a while. How about that? Yes, yes. But I, I was like, that would be really interesting to hear from the jurors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, I think it would be sort of interesting, but and, and maybe we can sort of start moving towards a conclusion here, because we also saw that it only took them four hours to find him guilty of eight extremely complicated uh, charges. So I'm, I'm, yeah, that I don't know if you have any comments on the speed of that, that judgment, but it definitely seemed like they did not spend a lot of time debating i thought so too i mean those are really complex there it's it's such a complex case there's no way they in detail talked about every single charge and everything they must have just had a really strong gut feeling that he's guilty on everything because yeah. it took them very little time yeah 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 it was wild but so for like i do genuinely think that like a brand that is available to you is like citizen journalism and you can too and like get that out there um that's true. But based, but like what you're doing right now, where can people find you, find your, your recordings of Sam that came out last year? Um, and like what, yeah, what, what would you like people to be paying attention to if they hear this? Yeah, I actually haven't released most of my conversations with Sam, um, but I've released some of them, um, especially the early ones. So it's all on YouTube at Tiffany Fong. I'm on Twitter at Tiffany Fong with one underscore. It's impressive that you got I, that I on YouTube, by the way. Oh, yes. Thank God. I have a substack at tiffanyfong.substack.com. I also have just begun posting a couple of audios onto like podcast platforms like Spotify and mm -hmm. Apple and everything like that. I'm still trying to understand it, but I think that might be better for longer mm -hmm. form things. So I'm also on those as well. Um, everything's just under my name. I'm not, I'm, see, you're thinking of a name for your podcast. I'm just like, yep, just going with my yeah. name for everything. I'm not very creative. Well, I mean, it's a good place to start. Maybe, maybe, maybe there will be an opportunity for you to branch off. By the way, we should um plug each other's sub stacks we'll 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 get on that oh, yes um sounds good. sounds good well anything else before we go Whew. 
not nothing nothing comes to mind if you have any last questions happy to answer um yeah i think i've i think you've you've satisfied my curiosity mostly about just your take on sam as a person is 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 quite interesting um tiffany fong citizen journalist independent journalist influencer uh kiss of death for crypto fraudsters uh if if Tiffany DMs you, immediately block her because she sees something that <laughs> others do not. Um, well, it's funny because this is a very quick little story, but like the day, I think the, a couple of days before Block 5 filed for Chapter 11, Zach Prince followed me oh on, on God. Twitter and we messaged. You're the a, Black a bit, Widow. I, my last message to him was, wait, is is BlockFi okay since FTX went down? Didn't you? That was my last message to oh Zach Prince. God. We exchanged a couple messages. Also, Suzu has reached out to me. So, and so I kind of am the kiss of death. But not for everyone. I still want to talk to more people. And I swear I'm not evil. But... And she will be more than fair with you, I think, is is actually the main point. And, and you're empathetic to people as a person, probably more than I am for sure. So um, if you want a friendly ear to cry on after your Ponzi scheme collapses, Tiffany Fong is your person. I will be a friendly ear after the Ponzi collapses. I, I think you're oh going to get some God. messages from this. I think that's going to happen. <laughs> I hope so. Oh, that's so funny. All right, Tiffany. Well, thank you so much for joining us here. And uh, yeah, we will, I'm sure, see plenty of each other uh, in the coming days and weeks. Oh, actually one very last thing. What is your, um, are you plugged into the status of the Mashinsky trial at this point? And are you going to go? I will be going to Alex Mashinsky's trial. I mean, as long as I have enough money at that time to go, but September, 2024, New York city, SDNY, I will be there. It will be hopefully. another big party at 3am outside the door of the SDNY. And I'll yes. probably be there too. So, Hell yeah. We'll see you there. And in the meantime, um, yeah, keep an eye on Tiffany. She will identify the frauds before anybody else um, just because they're in her DMs. So, <laughs> all right. Thanks again, Tiffany. Thank you for having me. Glad to do it. We'll talk again soon. Sweet. Bye. Take care. <laughs> Thanks again to Tiffany Fong for joining us here on Dark Markets. You can find this podcast on all major podcast platforms. Follow me, David Z. Morris, on Twitter at, at David Z. Morris. And find the newsletter that accompanies this podcast at davidzmorris.substack.com. Dark Markets is produced and edited by me, David Z. Morris. And music is by Altus Nomina. <laughs>